1: Today, a special edition of the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka, and I'm up here on a hill at Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland. I'm looking at a memorial, plaques bearing the names of the more than 900 people who died 40 years ago this week in Jonestown. Most were from the San Francisco Bay Area, and they were members of what was called the People's Temple. It was led by a man named Jim Jones. He was a charismatic white preacher, and he drew people in with his message of racial equality through a kind of socialism. God is perfect freedom, justice,
2: equality.
3: And uh, thus, the only thing that brings perfect justice, freedom, and equality, perfect love, and all of its beauty and holiness is socialism. So God
1: he brought his followers to the South American jungles of Guyana, a multiracial country where he planned to build a rainbow utopia. Jim Jones became increasingly paranoid and unhinged. He ordered some of his followers to kill a visiting congressman who was investigating the temple. He then orchestrated what he called an act of revolutionary suicide. He told his followers to drink cyanide-laced punch.
2: All we're doing is laying down our life. We're not letting them take our life. We're laying down our life. We just want
1: peace. Here at the cemetery, more than 400 of the dead are buried in a mass grave. No one ever claimed them. Some families were wiped out altogether.
3: You know, I knew she was dead. And I was just trying to connect with someone to say, hey, not all was lost in 1978. I, you know, I made it, at least.
1: Today we're devoting our whole show to a story from reporter Tara Seiler. We'll learn about one man determined to figure out the branches of his family tree, even when others asked him point blank, do you really want to know?
4: Robert Spencer has always pitched in. Coaching his kids' sports teams, volunteering with his church, and his labor union. He's the kind of guy who'll go out of his way to change a stranger's flat tire.
3: Maybe that's just a family trait being helpful.
4: Robert brings that trait to his work, too. He's kind of a jack-of-all-trades for the park service in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mending fences, cleaning restrooms, clearing trails. And in the summertime... He battles California's wildfires.
3: I enjoy firefighting because I like helping people. Being a park ranger, it's helping people.
4: Robert was adopted at birth, and for years he's been consumed by questions about where he came from, why he's helpful, why he's tall, why he has dark hair and olive skin, why his eyes are clear blue. He wants answers, but his lineage is complicated.
3: It's not me. I'm just like a product of two amazing stories. It's don't know how to explain it.
4: Growing up, Robert's adoptive mom and dad were older than his friend's parents. They were more like the age of grandparents. Then, when Robert was just 15, his dad died of cancer.
3: So, I'd been without a dad a long time.
4: His mom lived a long life, but Robert took care of her for eight long years, as age took her body and dementia took her mind.
3: Yeah, I loved my parents. They loved me. They raised me. Not looking to replace them, but there's something to be said about that biological connection that you have to somebody.
4: Robert is 50 years old. He's married with two sons. But it's like there's a hole inside him, a void, and he's trying desperately to fill it.
3: If I could just meet someone, you know, a cousin, and I could say I actually met someone on this planet, that I related to besides my two kids. Would you know, like, deep down, would there be some weird, like, knowledge of that?
4: Robert has a deep need to answer that question. Blood is a strange thing. It's thicker than water for some people and totally overrated for others.
3: As a child growing up, my parents would mention that I was adopted, and I didn't really know what that meant.
4: Then, when Robert was 10 years old, he learned a whole lot more about his adoption. He was playing with his dog. His parents were in the living room, glued to the evening news. They were getting the latest on a huge story gripping the country.
2: This is a Channel 7 New
4: Scene special report with our continuing coverage of the People's Temple story.
3: in the- and then it was 1978 the detail, when uh, Amber, the People's Temple tragedy happened it was on the news all the time these are the first pictures out of guiana on the incredible orgy of death that took place in the people's temple agricultural mission at jonestown and they were showing uh the planes you know landing at dover air force base and unloading the coffins the bodies are laid out almost like everybody took the poison and then picked a place to be still somewhere until the poison took effect my dad called me into uh, uh, my parents' bedroom. They opened up a drawer. He pulled out a picture of my mom, and he explained that my mother was uh, in Jonestown.
4: That's a lot to lay on a kid, telling Robert about his biological mother and that she just died in a mass killing at the same time. Her name was Agnes Bishop.
3: There was a sense of loss, but I don't know exactly what I'd lost. When you're a kid, you don't understand what's happening with, you know, birth and death and everything.
4: But Robert's sense of loss grew with more disturbing news. You see, Agnes, his birth mother, had four other children. They all died with their mom in Jonestown.
3: I had a real large family that I was adopted out of, you know, having three brothers and a sister— and to have them all just, the the news is that they're dead. You'll never see them. That was the end of that family line.
4: Not only were all these blood relatives dead, but in another twist, Agnes was adopted too, making it that much harder to find family.
3: It's weird being the adopted child of an adopted child, like who, who's family and who's not. It's hard to say.
4: And it gets weirder because it turns out Robert's birth mother's full name was actually Agnes Bishop Jones. She was adopted as a child by Jim Jones, the man behind the massacre, and his wife Marceline.
3: And my dad said that he actually spoke with Jim Jones and had, you know, was threatening legal action if Agnes didn't show up for all the court documents that had to be signed.
4: Why was Jim Jones involved in Robert's adoption? Did Agnes not want to give Robert up? Robert was too young to ask, and for a long time, he simply closed the door on this family history. But as he watched his own kids growing up, he had questions. And there was no one around to answer them. His adoptive parents were gone. About 15 years ago, he began searching for information about Agnes online. She was one of eight kids the Joneses adopted. They had one biological son. Agnes was married three times. She was 25 when she had Robert. She was 35 when she died. For a long time, that's all he knew. But a few years ago, Robert reached out to someone as close to Jonestown as you could get. Stephen Jones. Agnes's brother. He's the only biological child of Jim and Marceline Jones.
0: Well, that's definitely Agnes.
4: Stephen is looking at a picture of Agnes and her children, a rare photo of the family taken away from the people's temple.
0: It's good to see them there, uh, you know, to see them as a family outside of the temple together, because that's, that was discouraged in the temple you know, the family unit, unit, so.
4: Because it was supposed to be more communal.
0: More communal, yeah. And the family, if anything, you know, that was threatening to dad and his authority.
4: The movement revolved around Jim Jones, a master manipulator with a giant ego. After leaving San Francisco, the temple began building its multiracial utopia in Guyana. But Stephen wasn't at Jonestown the day the suicide orders came down. He and two of his brothers were on the other side of the South American country playing basketball and they survived. Here's Stephen at a news conference in Guyana as the dead were still being tallied, explaining why he didn't leave the temple, even though he knew his father had become a madman.
2: What would you do? I mean,
0: would you uh, leave and leave, leave everybody you've loved, everyone you've lived with all your life? All those people in my life, all my 19 years, I've known no one else, right? Uh, what am I going to do?
4: Virtually everyone in Jonestown died that day, including Stephen's parents, one of his brothers, and his sister, Agnes. She was a lovely woman,
0: um, very pretty face, a soft voice with a southern, midwestern twang, and a lovely, sweet smile, but I didn't know Agnes.
4: That's kind of a strange thing to say about your sister, but there was a big age gap. Stephen was only nine years old when Agnes gave birth to Robert, He knew nothing about the pregnancy.
0: Yeah, if I remember correctly, I met Robert by email first.
4: Stephen is a trusting guy, but he can be wary of people wanting to make some connection to the temple in Jonestown. People maybe looking for a sense of belonging, looking to heal some deep trauma of their own. But Stephen thought Robert's story was plausible.
0: I suspect that her pregnancy with Robert happened on one of her times away from the temple. I don't know how she did that, but she came and went more than anybody I can remember in the temple. And she never felt fully in. It's it's a tragic irony that they all they all died down there because I never really kind of felt like she was a part of the temple.
4: Did Agnes have some kind of special privileges? Did she see the dangers of temple life and want to spare one child? Or was she simply an unwed mother with no support? Robert was looking to Stephen for some answers. I
0: felt like I, I I should show up and you know tell him what I know.
4: Well, what did you think when Robert shows up out of the blue and says he's Agnes's son? I mean, did you think that was kind of strange?
0: <laughs> you got to remember where I come from. <laughs> Nothing seems strange as far as human behavior. Um, I mean, it got it even got stranger than that.
4: When Stephen and Robert finally met in person, it was later that year, survivors and friends and families of those who died at Jonestown were getting together for one of their sporadic reunions, this time in San Diego.
0: Folks were raising the question, they were wondering, why would Agnes have been told to put her child up for adoption?
4: They were wondering because Stephen and others tied to Jonestown know that Temple members didn't put their kids up for adoption to outsiders
0: children were held on to. And I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way, like we were a community, right? So that led people to speculate that maybe dad was the father of the child and they just wanted to make that go away.
4: A few people did think Stephen and Robert kind of looked alike. Their skin tone is similar. They have intense eyes, but in different ways and both were really thin at the time. Robert also began wondering if Jim Jones might be his biological father. He asked Stephen if he would take a DNA test.
0: My first response is, yeah, help the guy. Uh, And I, on some level, I feel an obligation to help when things connected that way um, uh, to my father and my history.
4: But let's face it, the idea that Jim Jones might be Robert's father is pretty creepy on a few levels. For one thing, it would mean Agnes may have been molested by her adoptive father. What would this information mean for Stephen's family? What would it mean for Robert's?
3: Do I want to know this? Does he want to know this? Actually, Stephen's a great guy, and he was genuinely concerned about me. Not
0: that that's my decision, but that was something that came to mind. I even said to him, "I said, do you really want to know that Jim Jones is your dad? Do you want to know
4: that? Was Robert seeking some weird notoriety by being the son of Jim Jones? Was he looking to inherit a family? Stephen didn't think so, but thought it best to play it straight with him.
0: Robert, you need to be clear that if we find out that we have the same father, it changes nothing for me.
4: That might sound a little harsh, but remember where Stephen comes from. He was raised in the temple. He was thrown together with eight adopted siblings of different backgrounds. Stephen had no history with Robert.
0: That you and I share blood doesn't hold a lot of weight with me, and I need to be sure you're clear about that.
4: Robert was clear, and Stephen didn't want to be the one person standing in the way of something that seemed so important to Robert.
0: And so we did the test.
1: You're listening to a special edition of the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. We've been hearing reporter Tara Siler's story about Robert Spencer, a man with ties to the Jonestown Massacre. His mother, Agnes, was part of the People's Temple, which relocated from San Francisco to Guyana. She died in a mass suicide 40 years ago this week, along with the four siblings Robert never got to meet. Here's Tara.
4: Robert was anxious about whether Jim Jones might be his biological father, and it took a long time to get the DNA result back from Jones' son, Stephen. And for Robert, there was a sense of relief when the test came back negative.
3: Now, that would have been horrible news to find out that Jim Jones is your father.
4: Stephen, the actual biological son of Jim Jones, moved on. He had his own family to think about.
3: And there was a little bit of uh, disappointment when I thought, man, I got a brother. And then that was not the case, you know, after all.
4: Robert was incredibly frustrated. He'd been searching off and on now for a decade for a living blood relative. His sense of desperation was growing. But over the next few years, he kept up the search. While he was working his day job as a park ranger near Oakland and fighting wildfires around the state, he was sending off his DNA to various websites. Robert's luck was about to turn. This past summer, as he was running between blazes, he found a genetic match with a man named Harmony Lebeuf. He's a 37-year-old pastor in Chicago, but the two couldn't quite figure out how they might be related. He also had a DNA match with a very distant cousin who was a whiz at genealogy. After a lot of online sleuthing, she thought she'd finally found a close relative of Robert's, not of his birth mother, but of the man who crossed paths with Agnes back in 1967, and a world away from Jonestown.
2: Well, originally I was born Thomas LeBeuf in uh, smack over Arkansas, out, out in the country.
4: This is Harmony LeBeuf's grandfather.
2: It goes back to the old French version, LeBeuf, and uh, so then. That was hard for people to remember because of my profession in the recording business. Columbia Records changed it to La "Beef," and sleepy was because I looked like I was about half awake most of the time.
4: Sleepy Labeef's eyes are still Sleepy, and he's still playing a rich mix of American roots music, blues, country, rockabilly, foot-stomping music like this song, Tore Up. He's 83 now and can still command a stage. Before getting the DNA hit on a website, Robert had never heard of Sleepy or his music, but to his fans, he's a musical icon. Sleepy spent decades on the road, but settled with his wife Linda in a modest home in Fayetteville, Arkansas. They had never heard of Robert until this past August, when he left a phone message saying he might be related to Sleepy.
2: I just kind of figured, because Sleepy's the youngest of ten kids and has so many relatives. This is Linda,
4: Sleepy's wife.
2: I thought I was probably a fourth or fifth cousin or something, and I, I wrote it down, but I didn't make it a high priority.
3: Uh, I wasn't getting callbacks. I was leaving messages, and I could tell I was like, God, they must think I'm a pest.
4: Finally, as Robert was on his way to fight the Mendocino Complex, California's largest fire ever, he tracked down Sleepy's music promoter in Nashville. He told him he thought Sleepy was his father, and the promoter agreed to reach out to him.
2: He said, well, this gentleman sounds like he's a intelligent person. He's not trying to claim, kid, when he's not, or anything like that, said, uh, you ought to talk to him.
4: But still, no one was calling Robert back. He wasn't waiting, though. He and his wife jumped on a plane in San Francisco and headed to Arkansas. It was the ultimate cold call. As soon as he landed, Robert called Sleepy, and they agreed to meet at a coffee shop in Fayetteville.
3: Didn't know what to expect, that's for sure.
4: Turns out, it wasn't just Sleepy coming. It was his whole family, his kids, his grandkids, and his wife, Linda. All there to size up Robert.
2: Well, when we first walked in and I saw him, obviously there was a the physical resemblance, so
4: I, I knew it was him. For Linda and Sleepy's oldest daughter, Jesse, seeing Robert was like a bolt of lightning.
3: My dad's eyes and my dad's smile completely. Me and my sisters have discussed it between us, and he, he pretty much looks like a younger version of my dad. Like, we remember our dad from when we were little girls, is about how Robert looks now.
4: Robert didn't see the resemblance. Of course, he was staring across the table at an 83-year-old man. But from the moment they all met, there was an instant connection, almost spiritual. It's just
2: a feeling that you have for for certain people. And I think that the whole family felt that for Robert right from the get-go. It was just, he, he was family.
4: Linda says their bond was so strong with Robert that even if there was no DNA match, they'd still want him as part of their family. But everyone agreed a test was needed, if only to give Robert a sense of validation. So the two went to a lab in Arkansas and took the test. Robert didn't get the result until he returned to California. 99.99% probability that Sleepy is Robert's biological father.
3: I look forward to more conversations with him and finding out, you know, what I can about my mom.
4: So we don't know if it was kind of a, a quick affair or a, you know...
3: No idea.
4: Within three weeks, Robert jumps on a plane again for a 10-day visit to Arkansas. He immediately throws himself into the family's daily routine, helping shuttle grandkids to various activities. In the evening, he's bent over photo albums, tracking the family and Sleepy's musical life on the road.
2: Here's uh, one of the first bands I had right here. I was skinny, too, back then. <laughs> Oh, that pink Look at this. Robert is, this is eating it all up,
4: trying to digest decades of lost history.
2: That's one of my favorite pictures. Yeah. That was taken <laughs> years and years ago. That is that John? Right there, yeah.
4: John is Johnny Cash. Sleepy also tosses out names like Elvis? Merle, as in Merle Haggard. Elvis, as in, well, Elvis. Once in a while, Sleepy picks up his guitar and plays one of his concert standards like standing in the need of prayer.
2: It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not for brother nor my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not for brother nor my sister, but it's me, oh Lord,
4: standing in the need of prayer. Robert, by the way, did not inherit this musical gene. He's okay with that, though. He's already started collecting Sleepy's albums.
3: I love his music. It's great that I just have to, you know, hey Siri, play Sleepy LaBeef, and then I get to hear my dad's voice. There we go.
4: <laughs> it's hard not to be struck by how fast this new relationship is moving. They have no shared history, no shared memories, no shared holidays, no shared dramas, all the wonderful and messy stuff that defines family for so many. So how do people go from strangers to family virtually overnight? To an outsider, it all seems pretty crazy, but not to sleepy.
2: Being from a big family, like I said, I had seven sisters and two brothers, and uh, there's always room for more. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm not uh, disappointed. I'm glad things are working out.
4: For Robert, things could not be working out any better. He's finally got what he's been searching for, a family and some answers. His olive skin is from his mother. His blue eyes are from his dad. But there is a lingering question. Robert still doesn't know the details of how Sleepy and Agnes met back in the 1960s. The details are pretty fuzzy.
2: And we had a place in Nashville there where all the musicians would meet called Lion Balls and Tootsie's Orchid Lounge and the Honey Club.
4: And fans from all over would come to these Nashville clubs to meet the musicians.
2: So you had an opportunity to meet a lot of people, and sometimes uh, we were not, you know, as responsible as we should have been. So things, things happened, you know.
4: About 10 years after things happened between Sleepy and Agnes, she and her four children would die in Jonestown. Her body was buried in Indiana, where she was born. The unclaimed bodies of her children, Robert's siblings, were placed in a mass grave site in Oakland. Just four days before the tragedy, Sleepy and Linda got married in Texas.
2: We saw it on TV. and In fact, I might have made the statement, well, I hope I didn't have any friends or, or fans that was involved in that, and Robert escaped that. So that was it was a blessing that he missed it. I felt like it was
4: basically a miracle, yeah. you know? I mean, he,
2: he should have been there.
4: So many things Robert has wanted to know about his birth mother are buried in Jonestown. Robert had hoped Sleepy would share some details about Agnes, but he seems at peace that his father has none to offer.
3: I guess I'm the rock and roll baby, or, you know, that was just a period of time. And that's how things turned out, and that's why I'm here.
4: Some families are joined at the hip. Some try desperately to get away from each other. And then there's Robert Spencer, who sought out complete strangers and got lucky with a DNA match and acceptance. But no matter how families are defined, we all know they require navigating.
3: I'm a Democrat. They're Republicans, and so we're different.
4: But he's not too worried about this red-blue divide or that they're Pentecostal and he's not. He's learning that in Arkansas, people even build bonfires in the middle of the day in their front yards. Robert and his niece and nephew are burning branches that fell during a storm. Bonfires in September, also something pretty strange for a man who works at putting fires out in California. Oh, that's hot. Everyone here is now looking forward to Thanksgiving. The extended family is descending on Fayetteville to welcome Robert, his wife, and their kids into the fold.
3: I'm thankful to be here, and I'm, it sure worked out well. You know, like on the back of comic books, you can order sea monkeys, and it seems like all you gotta do is just add water or something, and all of a sudden you're gonna have this. And it's just like it's like, instantly I have family now.
4: Well, it wasn't exactly instant, But it seems like Robert does have a lot to be thankful for. Thankful for his adoptive parents for raising him in a loving home. Thankful for Stephen Jones for helping him in his long search. For his new family in Arkansas for embracing him so unconditionally. And thankful for Agnes for giving birth to him in the first place and then letting him go.
1: You've been listening to a special edition of the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Today's story was reported by Tara Seiler. We had production help in Arkansas from Daniel Carruth. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer this week is Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our online producer, and our team includes Julia McAvoy, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation.
4: More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems, and the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org.